back to our series of uh, 1 Corinthians after a short break over Easter. And uh, we're jumping straight into the deep end, aren't we? Uh, This matter of uh, sexual immorality. Uh, it's, It's a theme that's very controversial today, obviously. Uh, maybe a few generations ago, uh, the general uh, moral values of the culture uh, was very much in line with Christian moral values, uh, but that has changed significantly in the last few decades. Sometimes you might hear someone say, why, why are you Christians? Why is the church so obsessed with sexual immorality? Well, it's only because we live in a culture that is obsessed with sexuality. So much is uh, sexualized today. So much of people's identity, they're told, is bound up in uh, your sexuality and how you express that. Uh, So when people say that, and then then people say, oh, the church needs to be relevant to today, well, surely relevance is saying, what is the culture talking about and what do we have to say about that? How do we as Christians, offer a better way than what society is saying. So we have a, a culture that is obsessed with sexuality. And things were no different in first century Corinth. The Greeks and the Romans did place high value on marriage, uh, on uh, male and female marriage, and they placed high value on marriage on marital fidelity, that was the true, true, but they also endorsed a whole range of other sexual expressions. The Roman Emperor Nero had wedding, three different weddings at three different times to men, where he played the role of the bride and married a man. Uh, amongst the Greeks, Homosexual relationships were considered uh, acceptable and appropriate. The pagan religions in their temples had temple prostitutes. Um, some, some, for some of them, the, that prostitution was part of the uh, religious rituals that took place, uh, but normally they were part of the, the feasting and reveling that took place after the religious worship ceremonies. And there were, as there are today, uh, the prostitutes generally who offered their services for, for money. So the Corinthians were, were dealing with this matter of sexual immorality just as much as we are today. There are a number of places that we might start when we're talking about sexual immorality and why it's wrong. Uh, and starting places that, are, that aren't actually that helpful, I don't think. Uh, some might focus purely on the morality issue. It's wrong just because God says it's wrong. Full stop, and that's it. We could call that the guilt-innocence approach, where we say, don't do it because it's wrong, without any explanation. Some might fo- focus more on the, the cultural or the personal preferences. We say, well, it's wrong because it offends me or because it offends the community. We could call that the, 
shame honour approach. So don't do it because it's shameful. Or others focus on the, you could say, the design aspect. It's wrong because it goes against the way that we're made and so it will cause us damage. We might call that the brokenness wholeness approach. So we say don't do it because it might harm you. Let's wait for that loud bike to go past. Now we can see something of those three approaches in the scriptures. They are there and in, in, on some level all of them are, uh, are true and valid. But the Bible presents us with a vision that is much deeper and wider. It gives us a perspective that starts with something that's much more glorious, much more wonderful than just the horizontal aspect of human behaviour. And it's a vision of life. It's a vision that, like many themes in the Bible, begins in Genesis chapter 1 in the Garden of Eden and it goes right through the Scriptures to the very last chapter of the book of Revelation. It's the vision of true marriage. Not between a man and a woman, but between Christ and the church. And I'm going to spend a bit of time kind of laying this foundation. In fact, I might spend more time on this laying the foundation today than uh, I do on actually looking at the text itself, because in a way it's the foundation that we need for the next couple of chapters in 1 Corinthians, the next couple of weeks. In the Old Testament, God described himself on a number of occasions as the husband of Israel. Here's an example in Isaiah 54. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood and will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion... I will gather you in overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. That word uh, Redeemer there uh, is a reference, I think, to the practice in Israel of the kinsman Redeemer. Uh, When a, a woman was widowed, she was left on her own, and it was the responsibility of a relative of her husband's to marry her so that she would be provided for again and so that she could continue to uh, have children and be fruitful uh, and have a good life. Notice that verse 5 doesn't say your maker is like a husband to you. But your maker is your husband. This is more than just metaphor. See, God doesn't look at 
human behaviour and culture to try and find something to say, this is a bit what my relationship with people is like. Human marriage is not something we came up with. It's what God came up with and what he built into the human race. God's relationship with his people is not like marriage. Human marriage is meant to point to the true marriage between God and his people. So that's why when when Paul is giving instructions to husbands and wives in Ephesians, he goes back to the... I thought I had it up there, but I don't. He, He goes back to the design of creation and he quotes Genesis 2. Here's what he says in Ephesians 5. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and wives must respect their husbands. So he likens the love of a husband for his wife and the respect of a wife for her husband to the relationship between Christ and the church. But he says that verse in Genesis a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, he says that's actually about Christ and the church. That's the true marriage. So that's why God stipulates that there is only one valid, true and good expression of human sexuality in the context of marriage between one man and one woman exclusively and for life. Because that's, the, that's the, the best image that he built into creation to be a reflection of the true marriage between his only begotten son and the one bride that he loves exclusively and eternally, the church. The, the church for whom he laid down his life to redeem. In his second letter to Corinthians, Paul picks up on this image when he talks about when the Corinthians first came to faith, when the church there in Corinth was first formed. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning... Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul here is a matchmaker. He's like Eliezer, the servant of Abraham, who was sent by Abraham to find a wife for his son Isaac. Abraham made Eliezer swear an oath that he would find Isaac a wife from among their own clan, not from the local peoples. Eliezer found Rebekah and he made a deal, a covenant with her and with her family that she would then go with him and become Isaac's wife. Well, Paul has done a similar thing in bringing the gospel to the Corinthians. 
When they believed in Jesus, they were betrothed to Christ. In biblical culture, betrothal was just as uh, important, just as binding as marriage itself. That's why Joseph, who was betrothed to Mary, when he found out that Mary was pregnant, he had to seek a divorce in order to bring that betrothal to an end, even though they weren't yet married. Fortunately, the angel stopped him and they got married. Well, the church in this age is betrothed to Christ. The coming marriage is absolutely guaranteed, and so we can say that the church is the bride of Christ, that Christ is the bridegroom. But the marriage is yet to be consummated. That'll happen when Christ returns to collect his bride and to take his bride to live with him forever in the place that he has prepared in the Father's household. Now when we see this, we'll see that this this image of marriage, this picture of God being married to his people, it appears all the way through the Bible. It explains why God called the prophet Hosea to marry a woman who was going to be unfaithful to him and to demonstrate undying faithfulness to her, even when she betrayed him. It explains why right through the Old Testament, idolatry is called adultery. It explains why, as we've been seeing in our Proverbs readings, that godly wisdom is like being married to a loving and faithful wife. Uh, It explains why Jesus chose to do his first miracle at a wedding feast. It explains why he tells parables of weddings and wedding feasts to illustrate the kingdom of God. It explains why when the Pharisees asked him why he and his disciples were not fasting, he says, well, they're not fasting because the bridegroom is among them. It explains why he says to his disciples, I am going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. And when I've prepared a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. John 14, 1 to 4. That's a song that the children learnt recently. It explains why the final vision that God, that Jesus gives John in the book of Revelation is of this heavenly city, the New Jerusalem, representing the people of God, and this city is dressed like a bride. A bit hard to imagine how a city can be dressed like a bride. John is told, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then he says, come, I will show you the bride and the wife of the Lamb as he's taken on a tour of this new Jerusalem. So this marriage of God to his people through the union of Christ with the church is one of the strongest and most consistent themes 
through the Bible. That's why it's so critical that the church upholds God's design for male and female and for marriage. When the church downgrades marriage to fit in with what the world and what the culture is saying, we're actually ripping out the heart of our own gospel. We're throwing in the bin one of the most glorious pictures that God has given us to help us comprehend the the loving, faithful, self-sacrificial love that Jesus has for us, his church. And I believe that one of the the saddest things about the downgrading of marriage um, and the recent uh, legalisation of same-sex marriage was just part of that. It's not actually just the moral issue. It's not just the fact that people will be hurt and will will continue to be hurt by dysfunctional marriages and relationships by uh, missing out on the security that a family as God has designed it provides. But it's that less and less we will be able to use the picture of marriage as an illustration of the gospel. We can no longer talk about a man pledging lifelong faithfulness to a woman. We can no longer talk about the covenant that's entered into when each partner makes unconditional promises that says, I'm in this for life, till death do we part. And of course the parts of the Bible that speak in that way will be seen as outdated and maybe even offensive. Now behind all human sin, behind the surface of wanting freedom, wanting pleasure, that's kind of there behind the, uh, the sexual revolution of uh, this age, is actually humanity's innate hostility towards God. Romans 1.18 tells us that we suppress the truth by our unrighteousness. So this disintegration of institutions like marriage is simply another way that barriers are being set up between people and the message of the gospel. As successive generations lose sight of Christian beliefs and Christian values, the values that so shaped their parents and their grandparents and great-grandparents, well, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it, then, that the cultural norms, the cultural institutions that stand as pointers to the gospel are also going to start to crumble. Our collective conscience as a human race doesn't want these nagging reminders of the beauty and the truth of God and his gospel. So they're going to fall by the wayside. Let's take a quick tour then of our modern culture's view of sexuality, what's happened over the last few decades to get this into perspective. Our culture here in the West is in a way backed into a corner and it's, we're backed into a corner from our own doing. The sexual revolution, so-called, of the 1960s and 1970s, it came out of two significant 
trends that were happening in society. There was the growing rejection of the baby boomer generation of their parents' Christian beliefs and moral values. Many baby boomers, so they were those who were born in the aftermath of World War II, so the 1940s onwards, many of them grew up in church, but maybe because church very often was just a very cultural thing, and maybe very moralistic, those moral values didn't stick because they didn't have the bedrock foundation of the gospel, of the grace of God. They were like a house that was being built on sand and then the sand got washed away and the house crumbled. The second development was the advance in medical science, medical technology that made contraception cheap and easily available and the rise in the use of antibiotics which made the treatment of sexually transmitted diseases cheap and easy. So at the same time that this generation was discarding the Christian values that said sexual activity should be reserved for monogamous marriage, at the same time as that was happening, the the risk of unwanted pregnancy and of sexually transmitted diseases was also being removed. And so as a result, we have what we've called the sexual revolution where sexual activity became increasingly viewed as a recreational activity, something that could be engaged in with no strings attached. And more than that, though, it's it's almost now become a human right. It's something that's just kind of expected that any normal adult will engage in. In 2005, there was a movie released called The 40-Year-Old Virgin and it was a comedy because the scenario in which a man could reach the age of 40 and still be celibate was considered laughable. 50 years ago, 50 years before that, that would have been considered honourable but now it's completely reversed. So that's where our culture has shifted in the last half a century. At the same time, though, we've been witnessing, haven't we, the consequences of that sexual revolution that gave people the expectation that it should be normal, that it should be acceptable for everyone. And so we've had a mainstream culture that facilitates it. And so our younger generations are fed this steady diet of entertainment, which portrays sexual activity as normal. Gender preferences are now tied to your self-chosen identity. Uh, In movies now, romantic movies, the normal scenario is you come to a conclusion about whether or not you love someone after you've slept with them. And as we heard a few weeks ago from Dan... Many people, even Christians, consider pornography to be unhelpful but not necessarily wrong or sinful. So that's the culture we're in, but we're also being confronted by the consequences of that. 
the reality and the prevalence of sexual assault and abuse. Little seems to be said, though, about how our culture has facilitated boys and men to grow up with a distorted view of sexuality and a view that uh, has an over-sexualised view of women. And then we seem surprised when sexual assault happens. I remember thinking how bizarre it was a couple of years ago when the, uh, at the height of the Me Too, hashtag Me Too movement, when Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein was facing charges of sexual harassment against female actors. At the same time as that, the bus stop billboards in Adelaide were advertising the release of a blockbuster Hollywood movie that was all about strippers. So, as I said, we've backed ourselves into a corner. We want to exploit one of God's good gifts, but without the boundaries that God has given it. We're reaping the rotten fruit as a result. Now, the world says the solution to this problem is just the matter of consent. That as long as it's between consenting adults, it's fine. But that ignores the deeper emotional and physical and spiritual effect that the abuse of our sexuality actually brings. Mere consent doesn't make something right or wrong, does it? If I gave you permission to hit me in the head with a baseball bat or to take all my money, that wouldn't make it the right thing to do. No, the rightness of our actions should be measured by God's standards and God's consent, God's permissions, not our own permission. There's one more thing that we need to have in our minds as a foundation for approaching this theme and this passage. We need to be clear on how we view God's moral standards. We can easily fall into a way of thinking that says, well, God's commands are kind of arbitrary, as if God decided decided for no particular reason that this thing would be right and this thing would be wrong, just because he did. And we can reflect that in our way of speaking, if we take that kind of morality approach. That's wrong just because God says it, full stop. Now, while that statement is true... God is the one who defines morality. He defines right and wrong. And it's not our place to question him on that. Just on its own, it's don't do it because it's wrong. That's legalism. That leads to only doing the right thing out of fear. I do the right thing because I fear the punishment that will come as a result. Well, behind God's law isn't just this arbitrary, abstract idea of right and wrong. It's his character of love. All he does flows from love. All that he commands his people is because of love. Every commandment that God gives has behind it the two great commandments, to love God with your heart, soul, mind and strength, to love your neighbour as yourself. So what makes any action right or wrong is does it measure up to the standard of love? 
Why does God prohibit certain actions? Well, because they'll cause harm to my neighbour. Why does he insist on other actions? Well, because that's the best way for me to love my neighbour. We tend to think that freedom is about being not being under any law to restrict us. In fact, true freedom is actually living in accordance to a law that has been given to us by a loving and self-giving God. That's why James calls, I think I've got it there, I haven't, James calls God's law in James 1.25 the perfect law, the law of liberty, because it is an expression of love, God's character. Now all of this is background to today's passage. I've spent the majority of this sermon time on this introduction, but as I said, it's kind of a a foundation to the next few uh, passages that we'll be looking at. Paul begins in verses 12 and 13 by quoting two phrases that the Corinthians were using, uh, and he counters them with his own phrases that shows them to be wrong, at least in the way that they were understanding them. The first phrase he quotes twice, all things are lawful for me. In the original Greek, there's no inverted commas, so it's, it's the job of Bible translators to discern that, that Paul is actually quoting here. Um, but they were saying, we have a freedom in Christ. We're no longer under law. They're putting a spin on it that made it fit in with the culture of the day. I have a right to do anything I want. Maybe they were using this fact that they knew they were not under law but under grace to say it didn't matter what they did. Maybe they would even quote Paul and say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But notice that Paul's answer isn't, no, actually there is a law against these things. He doesn't hit them over the head with legalism. He doesn't take the don't do it just because it's wrong full stop approach. Instead, he takes them to this motivation of love. Firstly, he says, well they say all things are lawful for me, but he says, but not all things are helpful. The word translated helpful here is a word that draws our attention to how our actions affect others. So he's not taking the, um, don't do it because it may not help you, but don't do it because it's not helpful for others. Some things we do, even if we are exercising our rights and our freedom, will have a detrimental effect on others. The reason why we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't break God's commands is because as we saw, God's commands are how to love our neighbour. So even an action that may not be prohibited by God's law, if it's going to harm our neighbour, if we do it, we're breaking the law, the law of love. So if you have a mindset where you want to love and serve others, well actually you'll choose to not do things 
because of the effect it has. Second, he says it again, all things are lawful for me. But then he says, but I will not be enslaved or dominated by anything. The nature of sinful action is that the more we do it, the more we practice it, the more we give ourselves over to it, the more it controls us and ends up enslaving us. We may think we're free because we're doing whatever we like, but in reality, we've allowed that thing to take over and to become our master, to dominate us. Now, what's the word for that? It's idolatry. Our desires and our appetites have become our God, and we're worshipping them rather than God. And so, we've broken the greatest commandments to love God with all our being, including our bodies. The second phrase that he quotes, which is a bit longer, and uh, the ESV here has the inverted commas finishing at the word food, but actually the inverted commas should actually be at the end of the sentence. So the whole quote that they were saying is food's meant for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. That's what they were saying. This phrase reflects reflects the, the Greek idea that all that matters in the end is the spirit, the soul of a person, and the body is only temporary. The, the Greek and pagan view of the afterlife was of a purely spiritual existence without a physical body or a physical world to live in. That then led to this idea that if that's the case, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. You can indulge in gluttony and sensuality because in the end, your body will be destroyed and your spirit will live on forever. But the biblical view is that our bodies are made by God. Our bodies are good. They're part of the creation. And that in the new creation, we will continue to have bodies, physical bodies. We will live in physical bodies that will be clothed with the immortality of Christ. So Paul responds, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. The Lord here refers to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus who delighted to take onto himself a body of flesh and bone and blood. He's embodied in human flesh for all eternity. We could even argue that the reason that God made human beings as he did, as dust, made from the dust of the earth, given the life-giving breath of the Spirit, so that we are in totality, body, soul, spirit, we are living beings, that's because that was the perfect design for when the Son would step into creation and be embodied. But it's not just the incarnation of the Son that demonstrates that the Lord is for the body, His resurrection seals the deal. God raised the Lord, Jesus, and will also raise us up by his power. Jesus was raised bodily, so too we will be raised 
bodily. So this this union with Christ, both in creation and in resurrection, includes a union of body. And so Paul says in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? See how Paul is going back here to this glorious vision of Christ's marriage to the church. In verse 16, he quotes, uh, no, it's verse 17, verse 16. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. He quotes Genesis 2.24 and the creation of marriage. What he's saying here is to commit sexual immorality isn't just about doing something wrong with our bodies. It's actually an act of adultery against Christ. We're being unfaithful to our faithful, loving, self-sacrificial husband. So no wonder we're told to flee from sexual immorality. If we belong to Christ, why would we not flee from it? Ultimately, it's his reputation that's at stake. So finally, we're told that sexual immorality is a sin against our own bodies. This is because it's something that involves the union of two bodies, two becoming one flesh. And of course we know, don't we, that Jesus taught that this is not just a physical thing. It's something of the mind and of the heart. Jesus taught us if a man looks at a woman with lustful intent, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. So this is a problem not because of the brokenness, wholeness idea that we can cause harm to our bodies, but because of what he says next. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Our bodies are a temple in which God himself dwells by the Holy Spirit. To sin against our bodies then is not a sin against me personally, it is a sin against the temple. It's like desecrating the temple where God is dwelling, the holy place. It's grieving the Holy Spirit who sanctified us, who set us apart to live for God's glory. And not only that, it's dishonouring to the redemptive work of Christ at the cross. Verse 20 For you were bought with a price. We are not our own. The precious blood of Christ was poured out to purchase us, soul and body, from our slavery to sin and death and to bring us into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Our ultimate motivation to glorify God then is a Trinitarian one. The Spirit dwells in you and makes you holy. The Son redeemed you with his own blood. And it's all 
to the glory 